this behavior really showed how poor his self-image is. That's the one time I feel like I saw the scary OJ. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Worst Case Scenario, a special edition of Best Case, Worst Case. I'm your host, Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor, and with me today is... Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. How you doing, Francie? Good, thanks. How are you, Jim? Good, thank you. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, let me tell you. It has been a crazy couple of weeks, and it was capped off, I think, last night by a television special that I know both of us were watching and texting each other during. And that's why we're doing this worst case scenario. I wanted to give our listeners the benefit of your insight as a former FBI profiler about O.J. Simpson's, quote, lost confession. You watched it all, right? Well, you know, as you know, I was part of the show um, and uh, I was brought into the project very secretly. I had no idea what it was about. Um, until I actually showed up at the studio and was very surprised to meet Denise Brown, Nicole Brown's sister. And um, I was then introduced to her and to their friend Eve and a number of other of the players that we would then eventually see on the program last night. So the first thing I want to say is that one of my very first questions was, um, if this is about OJ, how do you feel about it, Denise? And she said, my family and the Goldman family wants this to be made public. They want people to know who OJ really is and hear and see him when he talks about if I did it. Well, and Jim, some of the remarkable things last night, and one of the reasons I'm so glad that they did this special and that you participated, is it was the first time we've ever really seen O.J. Simpson talking about this. You know, he didn't make statements to the police other than a very brief one that was recorded. He never testified at his trial. And at his civil trial, 
we really didn't get a sense of what had happened. He certainly never admitted to doing anything wrong. Right. In civil trial, he completely avoided this topic. In other words, he said he was home hitting golf balls. He got on, he got on his limo, went to the airport, flew to Chicago, came back the next day when the cops told him his wife was dead. Um, so, yes, it's the first time that he publicly discloses information in a hypothetical about what he says hypothetically he would have done if he did it. Well, and I think some of the things that our listeners would like to hear from you is your perspective on things like his demeanor and what would drive him ultimately to even issue any kind of statements on a hypothetical basis. But let's get there after we first start kind of in the beginning. And that is with his demeanor during the interviews last night. I was very struck by what I felt like was his extreme need to be liked and to be likable. Absolutely. Starting with them miking him up for the interview. And Every time he told a story or insulted Nicole or talked about just about anything, he had a very sort of expansive look on his face. He would chuckle. He would um, say some self-deprecating things. It was very clear he really wanted the interviewer to like him. I think over the course of the interview and something that you may not have seen on the TV show, um, but something that I talked to Judith about, Judith Reagan, who had done the interview of OJ, she said that a number of times OJ said to her, well, you thought you weren't going to like me, but I changed your mind, right? And she said he was totally unaware of his own demeanor, how he comes off and how he turns people off and how he creeps people out. He so believes his own hype. And I kind of corrected her because what I believe is that he's a vulnerable narcissist, and that is that he's the kind of narcissist who absolutely does not believe that he's the greatest, who has such a poor self-image. He has to tell people about it all the time. He has to brag and boast. And I use the example of Michael Jordan, someone who clearly is the best basketball player of all time. And yet, he never has to say that to anyone. He simply lived it. And because of that, you don't hear him say over and over and over again how great he is. When you hear OJ do exactly that, I didn't count, but it was at least three or four, maybe more times than that, when he said things like, and, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm a great guy. I'm a nice guy over and over again. And like you say, someone who really is doesn't need to tell others that. Right. He goes further, though. He's saying, I, you know, I enjoyed probably the best level of adulation from the public. I mean, certainly no one had better adulation than I had from the public. I mean, what? Are you kidding me? Certainly there were people that were actually better than OJ in terms of what people, how people elevated them in their hearts and their minds. But to him, no one ever was better than he was. No, and one of the things I think was completely absent that I found remarkable, grief. I know that it was 12 years later, but if he hadn't 
done it. Mm. It seems to me that he should very well have been displaying at least some measure of grief when he talked about his children losing their mother or losing his ex-spouse, who he claimed throughout the interview to still and always would love, but I never saw any grief. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think on top of that, what we saw was a guy who was trying to boast about what he had gotten away with. So if we look at this, this is basically his opportunity to tell his story without any legal ramifications. So I think it would be great if we can discuss whether or not this was a legal confession. Well, it's interesting you say that, Jim. And of course, as our listeners know well in this country, but maybe our listeners overseas will be unfamiliar with, in this country, the Constitution prohibits, that is, says we cannot try someone for the same crime twice. Right. It's called double jeopardy. Other legal systems do not have that prohibition. So OJ was literally in no legal jeopardy if he were to confess. Even today, he could step forward today and say, I killed her and I liked it. And he could not be prosecuted for that. He'd be completely protected. But what about the fact that the federal government laws are different than the state laws? And if you prosecute someone in the state and they're acquitted, they could still be successfully prosecuted federally if that same action violated a federal law. That's absolutely true because the state and the federal government are what we call separate sovereigns. So you can have a situation, for example, we have civil rights cases where there is a death of an, an, someone in custody or someone under arrest, someone that is killed by police, and they are prosecuted at the state level for murder-related charges whether they're acquitted or convicted is irrelevant. The federal government can then still prosecute those police officers for killing someone under what's called the color of law. Right. But there aren't there civil rights violations by regular citizens, hate crimes that that they could also be prosecuted federally? There are. There is a hate crime statute that was signed into law by President Obama in honor of uh, James Byrd and Matthew Shepard, mm. who were both killed in what appeared to be hate crimes based on their race uh, and the fact that Matthew Shepard was gay. The law does allow prosecution under the federal government for hate for hate crimes, but it's very difficult, and I'm not aware of any single case where a domestic murder, which is what this looks like, at least as it relates to Nicole Brown, where a domestic murder was prosecuted by the federal government under some kind of hate crime theory. Now, the hate I, crime law did not go into effect until after this crime was over, so I'm not certain, but that's my understanding is I'm not aware of a single case that's been prosecuted for something like this. Right. Well, obviously, that brings up the topic of ex post facto laws. And that would mean any law that basically punishes conduct from that date forward is okay. But any law that punishes conduct that predates the passing of that law is called an ex post facto law. And it is not constitutional in the United States of America. So, you can't pass a law today that would create a crime that didn't exist in the past. 
That's right. And so let's talk about the crime. I mean, let's talk about OJ's whole attitude when he says, oh, this is just hypothetical. What do you think of that trick or that artifice that he's using to potentially describe exactly what he did do? Well, I think if we're looking at it at a a macro scale, that this is someone who adores the limelight. He lives his entire life for the limelight. I believe if you haven't seen the five-part O.J. Simpson Made in America docuseries, you should see it because it's an amazingly insightful look at his career, at his childhood, and at his life after football. Most people would probably be surprised by the brief period of time that O.J. was actually in the limelight. I mean, four years of high school, four years of college, and literally only about two years of his pro career out of maybe four or five before he retired. And he retired not because he couldn't play football anymore, but because he wanted to become a Hollywood star and also a sportscaster. So Hollywood took him away from football at what should have been his prime. What does that tell you about this guy? Tells me that this is a guy who, like you said, is desperate for the limelight, fame, and adulation. I think that's the most... Uh, Interesting word. It's the most precise word I can find to describe what he wanted. And he wanted adulation. Well, I think during the course of the Fox program, OJ Simpson, the lost confession, question mark, a number of times he proved that to be true. Whether it was specifically and directly saying, people love me. Oh, they always love me. Oh, well, they think this about me, but then they meet me and they're fine. Oh, people look up to me. I enjoyed the highest level of public support. All those kinds of things over and over and over again. We saw that. But we also saw him bragging about the most inane things. This behavior really showed how poor his self-image is. He said, for example, well, everybody knows I'm a voracious reader. I read two or three books a week. Well, what? What? Do you really believe that? No, I did not believe that at all. And then he says, well, there are murder mysteries, so I know how these things go. So he was telling us how he learned to not talk to the police if you're guilty of a crime, as if that was an indication of his innocence. Well, and Jim, one of the most remarkable things, I want to go back to kind of the hypothetical in a second, but jumping ahead, you know, I like to jump ahead. You do. Jumping ahead for a second. When he was talking about the slow speed Bronco chase, a few days after his wife is brutally murdered, he's supposedly contemplating suicide. He's got a gun. There's police chasing him. It's all over television. His wonderment, though, is solely focused on what he said was, I couldn't believe all the people supporting me and cheering and the people who'd even made signs. Right. Where did they get the time? Well, he made it sound like, because this was something you'll see over and over again. He minimized whatever was bad. Okay. Anything that was bad, he minimized. And here, what are you saying is, yeah, so we just took a little drive here and there. I mean, he was driving from daylight into nighttime. I mean, it was hours and hours on the road and they went 
a far distance and they were going back and forth and doing all sorts of stuff. And he made it seem like it was a couple of minutes. He said, where did they get the time to make these signs? Because it had been going on literally for hours. The known chase went on literally for hours, but he had already been on the road for a couple of hours, at least before the cops had found him. So we're talking about a huge number of hours that he was, quote, only on the road for a few minutes in his mind. Let's go back then to the beginning um, where he talks with Judith Regan about the day that Nicole died. What I found interesting, and I want to get your take on it, was that instantly when he's talking about the day Nicole died, he's talking about her outfit. He, he's talking only about himself and then insulting her. And that's the one thing I put down in my notes about what he was saying about her when he saw her at the child's recital was her outfit that night was inappropriate. And he gets that look on his face that he'd had the whole show when talking about Nicole in every context is that she was doing something wrong. Yeah, he he definitely projected blame on her. So we have minimization of his part. We have projection of blame. And we also have rationalization here. And those are the... RPMs, rationalization, projection, and minimization. Those are things that we typically see with offenders because these things allow them to justify their behavior, their criminal behavior, their violent behavior. So in this case, he rationalized by setting up a situation in which he was angry and justifiably so in his mind. So I think he spent a long time talking to Judith about, you know, having to travel and being tired and having missed something for his daughter a couple weeks ago. So he had to be at this one. And he he made sure that he told Nicole he was going to be there as opposed to her making sure he was there, all that kind of stuff. Um, she asked him to save a seat, but he didn't. She ended up saving it and she saved a seat for him. So he was trying to show that she, Nicole, wanted him to be next to her. Whatever. Who knows what really happened? But over and over and over again, we see him minimize, but we see him here setting up the rationalization that he was angry already. And probably one of the most telling things that happened during this entire interview was how emotional he got with that anger during this period of the interview. Well, he did. And I wondered, Jim, when I was watching last night, I wondered what you thought, because I remember from following the case very closely, I remember that there was, that the defense attorneys brought forth theories, including that Nicole Simpson was hanging with a bad crowd, that somehow it was these bad crowd people who had been the one, the ones who had killed her. And so I wondered if you thought that OJ was continuing that myth by saying, oh, she's dressing inappropriately. She's hanging with a bad crowd. Um, I'm concerned about who she's hanging out with her at her house if he's continuing that myth. Well, what's crazy about that is that that fights tooth and nail with his hypothetical. 
And what's really amazing is that when he starts into this hypothetical, he said, this is just a hypothetical. And he then starts to talk about this guy, Charlie, right? Charlie, somebody he says in this hypothetical he met recently. Well, Charlie then quickly drops away from the scenario. And although he sets it up, for example, saying that he got in the Bronco because Charlie told him some bad stuff was happening at Nicole's house and they should go over there and address it. They got there. He said he had a knife in the Bronco, but he left it in the Bronco. Problem with that story is that when the police found the Bronco, the knife wasn't there. Why would OJ get rid of a knife that he didn't use in a crime? So just that piece of information really is a red flag. But they move on, and he says he didn't take the knife, but Charlie must have. Well, and to me, this reads like a confession. He may not have looked like he was confessing. In fact, I'll be interested to get your take on his demeanor, because during this entire, quote, confession, that's the one time I feel like I saw the scary OJ. He was very intense, very serious face. Yeah, when he wasn't laughing inappropriately, That's yes. right. That's right. But he had a much more, I think, I feel like what it was, was he was much less conscious of trying to be the nice guy. The on OJ. The, That's right. Yeah. And instead was in his head, I could really almost see it, Jim, Going in playing his in his head like a movie. Yeah. He's talking to Judith about these events as he's remembering these events. And so he can no longer stay in his I'm OJ, the fun loving guy mode. Right. Because I mean, what happens very quickly is he abandons this hypothetical and he starts telling us things. Well, I don't remember that. I remember this. I remember grabbing the knife. And he reaches back with his right hand and grips like he's holding the handle of a knife. And you remember, Francie, that an indicator of veracity is acting out the events you're talking about. That is an indicator that OJ is talking about a true recalled event as opposed to something you make up in your mind, a hypothetical. So from that point forward, he dances back and forth. Every now and then he remembers and, and throws in, this is just hypothetical. But at one point, when he's asked, for example, about the glove, well, you took off a glove, didn't you? And he says, you know, I don't recall that. I don't remember that. But I must have because they found a glove there. So he abandons the entire defense that, oh, the police planted this here and it was all just made up. He actually confirms what the prosecution said. And that does not at all in any way comport to a hypothetical. No, and neither does his excuse for why he got into a fight with Ron Goldman. He says that when he came up, he mentioned to OJ that he was there to return some lost or left glasses. And OJ then said, but I didn't believe him. Just like you said, there's nothing about that that says this is a hypothetical. It sounds like a true recalled memory. Right. I didn't believe him. Why are you talking about a belief? And then he goes further to say, it was horrible. 
like just a horrible scene. There was stuff everywhere. And when she says, what do you mean by stuff? He said, blood and everything. Then he goes on to say about if two people get murdered in that way, everybody has to have blood on them. So he would have been covered in blood. And then he says, we all saw the crime scene photos. But later he would say that he never saw the crime scene photos, that his lawyers wouldn't show them to him, that he looked away during the trial because he didn't want to see them and he didn't look at them himself. So when did he see this bloody crime scene? Well, he saw it when he caused it. Well, that would be the reasonable conclusion there. Well, and Jim, the thing that was striking to me amongst many striking things is he was very, very serious when he was talking about the hypothetical until he got to the point where he talks about the blood and says, stuff, blood, there was blood around, Nicole fell. That's when it's at that moment after I feel like we've been seeing the real OJ that all of a sudden it occurs to him that he's confessing. And that's when he goes back to chuckling OJ. And he gives a loud chuckle right at that moment, talking about the blood and starts to walk it back and immediately then talks about how Charlie said to him, Jesus Christ, OJ, Jesus Christ, we got to go, we got to go. Which I would submit if I was arguing to a jury that that is OJ's own voice inside his head saying, Jesus Christ, OJ, what have you done? We got to get out of here. Right. And while OJ claimed that he'd never seen the crime scene photos, I have seen the crime scene photos. And this was an absolutely blood-soaked, brutal scene. I'm sure all our listeners are well aware that Nicole Brown was nearly decapitated by the knife attack and that Ron Goldman was savagely stabbed multiple times. Mm. This was savagery at its worst. And to me, that means it was very personal and fits right in with what we know about OJ's confessed anger toward her. I mean, he never admitted that he was angry enough to kill. But he certainly blames her for everything that went wrong in their relationship, blames her for the crowd she was hanging out with, blames her for the clothes that she's wearing. And this last point on OJ's anger is something I wanted to ask you about. Judith asked him what he would say to Nicole if he sees her in heaven, as if OJ Simpson's going to heaven, if one believes in heaven and hell. Well, he did say... Well, if there's a heaven and hell, he he mentioned hell two or three times. He did. And he specifically expresses anger, even when he's talking about what he would say to her in heaven. And it's the one time I feel like in the interview, he's not comfortable. You can see him squirming in his seat when he tries to come up with what would he say to her mm. in heaven. And it's not the normal things all of us would think. I mean, a loved one we lose, it was, oh my God, I'm so glad to see you, or I love you, or I'm sorry for all the things I didn't say or did say or didn't do or did do. None of those things. He looked very uncomfortable, like he truly had no idea what to say. And to me, that was a big indicator of his absolute guilt. Well, didn't he end up saying, um, if there is a heaven or hell, they already know. 
He did. I don't have to explain anything. He did. They already know. They already know what? Exactly. They already know that you did it? I mean, very bizarre. Well, the whole the whole interview, let's be honest, was very bizarre. But let's move to the point where he's telling Judith about the, spl- the slow-speed chase. I have always wondered about whether he was truly suicidal. Because as you say, he's a narcissist. And it seems like narcissists are never going to kill themselves. Well, except for when their reputation is ruined. And I believe, I believe he was suicidal. And I believe what saved his life was all the people that came out and were cheering him because he said, oh, damn, I still got it. I'm still great. They still love me. I don't need to kill myself. I was going to kill myself because I thought they wouldn't love me anymore. I thought they would hate me because of what I did. And so I think that changed his mind, that he had an opportunity. And what he says in this interview is, What changed my mind was Tom Brokaw saying that I was a domestic abuser. Mm -hmm. So I know that I am being arrested for double homicide. But what I'm really upset about is somebody thinking I beat my wife eight times. It makes no sense. No, the whole thing makes no sense. And when he talks about after that, going to jail. Uh, He doesn't talk about the things I think most of us would about being in jail. I've been to a lot of jails, Jim. They're horrible places. And what he talks about was he couldn't socialize like he likes. He likes to talk to people and he couldn't. What he really means is he likes people to show that they adore him and there was no one in jail adoring him. Right. Uh, I think that's true. And I think you also have a situation where he said, I couldn't, I can't be locked up in a cell. I can't be. Well, what does it do? It takes away all your power, all your control. And he is a very controlling person. I mean, he controlled his image and that was what was most important to him. Well, and it seems that in the end, that's still what's most important to him because he talked specifically about the public still hugs me, the public still asks about my kids. So this is at the very end of the interview. He's basically uh, accused Nicole of causing her own murder. He's given a, a what sounds like a very strong, detailed confession about what he did and why he killed her and Ron Goldman. But in the end, what concerns him is not his kids, not his grief, not his guilt, but his adulation, his adoring public. So, Francie, if you had a copy of this video and you were going to prosecute OJ for the very first time, would you, A, be able to use this video, and B, do you believe that this is actually a confession? You know, that's a great question, Jim. Um, I think as a prosecutor, it would be the subject of a lot of debate because he does couch it as a hypothetical. So there would definitely be some prosecutors in this country who wouldn't want to play it. They'd be worried that the jury would seize upon his statements that it's a hypothetical, upon his potential likability. They would be worried about how it would come off to a jury. For me, if this was my case, I would 
definitely have faith in my own ability to explain what is going on here in closing arguments. And I would absolutely use it. I would absolutely call it a confession because there's no doubt in my mind that this was O.J. Simpson confessing to this brutal double homicide of Nicole and Ron. Wow. The other thing about this that I would have wanted a jury to hear, Jim, was he said, I felt like who I was was attacked and murdered. And it bothers me to this day that people wanted me to be guilty. It doesn't bother him that the mother of his children is dead or that an innocent person got caught in what was clearly a frenzy of hate from one person to Nicole. Those things don't bother him. What bothers him is that his reputation suffered and still suffers. And to me, that's when his outrage, the only time his outrage was real during this interview is when he talks about what he has lost in the face of the public. Yeah. On top of that, there was one time where he's talking about the day after his arrest when he showed up for the arraignment and he said he looked horrible. He didn't even have a tie on and that they had kept him up all night, supposedly under this suicide watch, but they woke woke him up every 45 minutes and couldn't get any sleep. And that's why he looked so horrible. Again, who on this earth is concerned about whether or not they have a tie-on in court when they're being tried for a double homicide. O.J. Simpson. Yeah, because image is everything to him. So he screams out what's really important to him, and he repeats it over and over and over again. And he did this, in my mind, he did this because he can't step away from the limelight. He did this because that's the only thing important for him. And the thought of the loss of that, in my mind, drove him to want to kill himself, but his ego won when he saw people screaming his name and cheering for him, said, hey, I haven't lost it. I can still do this. So I guess it's a good thing that people saved his life, but it's a bad thing that the jury decided to not listen to the facts, nullify the facts, Focus on the sideshow that Johnny Cochran and team created and allow OJ to act his way out of one of the most brutal crimes in the history of the United States of America. It was, Jim, and I appreciate your insights, and I know that our listeners appreciate your insights. So thanks for all you've done as a profiler, and thanks for the insight into the OJ Simpson case, which I hope lots of people saw and can take away the real O.J. Simpson from this. And hopefully people will watch this over and over and over again and see that O.J. was laughing when he was talking about blood, this crime scene. See the anger rise up in him when he's talking about his dead ex-wife, the mother of his children, and see what kind of a person he really is. It truly is a lost confession. Justice was not done here, and it's really, really tragic. Well, let's see if we can find a federal law that's still in play that can lock them up. I'll pull out my dusty books. All right, great. Well, thank you all for listening to this special edition of Best Case, Worst Case, Worst Case Scenario. For now, we're signing off. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.